you're listening to Left of the Dial. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest. Nick Brown is a graduate of Columbia in the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. He's a professor of creative writing um, and the author of the novels In Every Way, Doubles and um, Floodmarkers. He's also a I'm, I'm hesitating here. A former question mark drummer whose forthcoming memoir, Bang Bang Crash, out February 21st via Counterpoint, details his journey from high school student playing in the most popular band in Greensboro, North Carolina, to having a hugely popular song on the radio in the late 90s when having a hugely popular song on the radio really seemed to mean something. Uh, he's played with artists such as Ben Lee, Longwave, and Skeleton Key, and is a founding member of the band Athenaeum. Today, Nick's here to talk about some of the music that forms the soundtrack to Bang Bang Crash, and of course, the book itself. Welcome to the podcast, Nick Brown. Hello. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited. I, I'm, I've said the memoir's name out loud twice now, and it's the first time I've said it out loud, and it's so fun to say. <laughs> That's my first note. Great title. Oh, oh, it's hard to come up with a good title, especially <laughs> like we work through a lot of bad drummer sort of puns, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go. Most of them aren't good. And then um, I was I was pleased when one day I started making a list of the sounds that drums make. And then I remembered a road manager that used to, he was not very musical and he would tell me to go do the bang, bang crash. And I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> That's it right there. Yeah, it's great. Do you, do you want to share any of the, do you have any off the top of your head, any of the, the real stinkers that didn't make it? Well, so, well, the first one that I was working with was ghost notes, which is a cool title. And yeah. those are the, the quiet notes you play that sort of create the feel in your drum part that you, that aren't heard. But my agent was like, man, that just sounds so depressing and sad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but it's poetry, man. It's a great title. And I like held on to it for a while and then sort of realized he was right. And so we let ghost notes go by the wayside. And then it was just dozens of conversations of like people saying, oh, it should be little drummer boy. And me thinking, oh, God. <laughs> so, um, you know, between Ghost Notes and Bang Bang Crash, I can't remember any that really got stuck to the project, but most of them were very bad. <laughs> Little Drummer Boy is really, that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, Ghost Notes is also very good, but Bang Bang Crash, it's just that really, and you said, you know, it, that, that Ghost Notes sounds depressing. And I think there's a, a version of your story that you could have told in a kind of like, I don't know, self- let me start with this. It's it's not a sad and depressing memoir at all. There's it's a really I think introspective and you're being very um I think kind of open and and it feels anyway as the reader very honest about the things you're questioning throughout it. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about your your story and then we'll jump into the music? Yeah. Well, it was interesting when you were introducing me and you said you were hesitant to say I am a drummer or I was a drummer and I agree. And that's sort of a, a position I've been in for quite a while. And what I mean is I had a, a really successful career as a drummer and then I left it behind, not because of any, uh, you know, I wasn't arrested. I didn't do something <laughs> stupid on an awards show. I wasn't kicked out of a band. I just sort of moved on and it became a topic that was uncomfortable for me to figure out a way to discuss with other people in my life to the point that I just really didn't talk about it for a long time. I mean, most people in my life 
had no idea that I played an instrument, let alone had a successful career doing so. Mm -hmm. And so just as a writer, you know, I have figured out that if something is awkward and seems sort of weird, it's probably a good thing to write about. And uh, so, you know, it had been sort of floating around as a possible project. And there were some essays that I'd been writing about music that took me a long time to sort of figure out what I was writing about. And I finished one of those and then realized this isn't an essay. This is actually, mm -hmm. I think, there's a lot more here. And so that's where the book came from. It's so interesting. You talk so much. I mean, even even right here, and I know I set you up a little bit for it in my intro, but it's because it's such a a through line in in the memoir of that. I was really taken by how often embarrassment and shame comes up in this memoir, and yet you still chose to write about something that I I won't say you know too too much. I don't want to give your whole story away, but I don't know that you ever in the, in the book really land on a why or where that, that she really comes from too much. And I wonder if that's something that you've, that you do feel like maybe you have some sort of answer for outside of that or. Well, I don't know the exact answer and it mm -hmm. is, um, you know, it's complicated because there's, you know, in one way there's, I'm absolutely proud of my career as a musician and being a musician but then there is this whole thing where I become embarrassed when it comes up. I feel like if people don't understand the career, then I'm bragging if I'm trying to explain it. And then, or maybe, you know, there's like, it's like a choose your own adventure when you get to this point when the topic comes up. Maybe somebody's a super fan. And then that makes me a little uncomfortable, I guess. Um, so I, I don't know that there is a specific reason. I think in writing the book, Personally, I became a lot more comfortable with just like talking about my career as a musician. But also, I think um, I grew up with a really serious teacher who was very profoundly important to me. And he had real dreams of me being a great jazz drummer, you know, mm -hmm. and that I am not a great jazz drummer. And that was not my career. And I do sort of looking back, I think that was the first time I started to think of like, you know, when my career would come up, I would think, oh, man, like, if only I was the drummer that Pete, my childhood <laughs> drum teacher, wanted me to be. You know, it's like my rosebud. And then, <laughs> and then there's, I mean, in a way, it's like, you know, I became a writer and I'm sort of in, I'm in different circles. And sometimes when the topic of, like, your rock and roll career comes up and... <laughs> It, people don't know how to address it. And honestly, most people just think that you're in a cover band or something, mm -hmm. which is fine. But um, it's it's rare that I want to tell people, hey, guys, I was a drummer for a long time and a super successful bands. And it was a great career because I don't see a lot of upside to that in a conversation. It either makes me uncomfortable or the other person uncomfortable. And I would just as soon have them think I'm just a quiet professor who likes to work in his yard. <laughs> it's so funny because you, I, I feel, I feel okay saying this as someone who comes from, um, I think being a writer is embarrassing too. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, I quote, um, uh, uh, who is it? Elizabeth Bishop, the poet in, in the mm -hmm. book early who says yeah. there's nothing more, than being a poet 
and absolutely. I mean, at least I'm, you know, I'm not a poet either. But like, you can imagine <laughs> you're, you're, that conversation. You're creating a real hierarchy where it's like, do you think it's it's poet or drummer? We know writer. Totally. We know novelist is above. Right. <laughs> Well, it's funny because, you know, I think of myself as a writer first Mm -hmm. and right now sort of a professor second. I do. I teach here at Clemson University. But being a professor is great cover for a normal conversation. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because if you're on a flight or you're sitting beside, what do you do? I'm a professor. Like, okay, everything's fine. But if you Uh say I'm a drummer or I'm a novelist, then like, you know, everything gets a little weird. And sometimes you just don't want to get into that dynamic. That's it's it's I I'm so fascinated by this, especially because I guess when you think about, you know, I I specifically listed the fact that you you came through the um, uh, Iowa Writers Workshop because that is it's the most prestigious one you can kind of come through. And then also you're somebody who who played in like a a band that that was wildly successful, at least for a time. And so those two things to me are, are, you know, but then to still have that kind of, I don't know, I could tell, we should get into the music though. I could talk about that forever. Well, but I appreciate your interest in it because in a way that's what's at the center of my book and the way that I think about Mm -hmm. music and does, I, I hope make this memoir a little different than some other, you know, music memoirs that I've read is that, that sort of conflict between am I embarrassed about this or am I proud of it? And what's my problem? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Especially because it's, it's a book where, especially the uh, like ex musician memoir, that genre, there are some moments that I think people are often waiting for Like, where is rock bottom? You know, where's the, the point when the person is like too drunk or too whatever, to play the show and that's when they know and and there that isn't in your book at all it's it's a much more i think thoughtful take on on this kind of story yes i well i hope so and i will add that i hope that the title bang bang crash does not lead people to think i have a heroin overdose in the third act of the book you know i have one right you know it sounds like maybe i killed somebody you know maybe i something went you know the crash aspect but it it yeah, for me is a um sort of a meditation on art and identity, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um so speaking of meditating on art, let's jump into one of the songs. Do you you have a preference for where we start? Well, let's start with what I didn't know by my band Athenaeum that um is a band that I literally formed to play my 8th grade dance. I was the <laughs> youngest member, the other guys were a little older and we um well, we stayed together through high school, and essentially, as soon as I graduated from high school, we signed a very big record deal with Atlantic Records, and this was the first song on our major label debut, and it was our hit song, basically.
I was looking back at, um, I'm trying to think of where I want to start this. Uh, the first show I ever attended was a radio festival uh, for a Philadelphia radio station that isn't around anymore, Y100. Um, and it was Green Day and Mighty Mighty Boss Tones and just a bunch of bands that I was just like crazy about at the time. And one of them was Athenaeum. So my first live music <laughs> event was was with your band. Um, oh, which is, wow. And it was 98, May 1998. So it was right. I mean, you guys popped off pretty fast once that single yeah. dropped, right? Yeah, that's amazing. I remember those handful of shows in that month, <laughs> really. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there were, you know, back then, as you mentioned, that there were radio stations that a lot of them don't exist anymore, but they had those radio festivals. Basically, every band on the charts, you know, they would try to get to come. And mm -hmm. so for us, we got to play with a lot of bands that we weren't otherwise touring with. And I remember, I don't know if it was that show. We probably played five or six shows with Green Day. Mm -hmm. And I remember standing behind the drummer of Green Day at one of those radio shows. Let's say it's that one. So you're <laughs> out there in the crowd. I'm standing yeah. out there and I'm watching that drummer for Green Day. And it was really interesting to see how he played because it was like um, it was like a theater trick. He wasn't hitting the drums very hard, but he made yeah. it look like he would. He would lift his arms <laughs> all the way up in the air and Animal. then just sort of hit the drums. And I thought, oh, my God, that's genius, because he was playing so many notes. You can't hit the yeah. drums that hard with your arms all the way up. And it was just it was like um, it was very pro. You know, I thought, oh, he's putting on a show. And mm -hmm. anyway, that is, I, I remember having that specific so sort of epiphany, either at that show or one of those, it would have happened that month, basically. So wild. That's, that's so funny. Yeah, that was a show. It was pouring that night. I remember that. A smaller detail from the book, but now that you, you're talking about hitting the drums hard, you, you talk about kind of making that decision in, in the book, like, I'm just going to drum harder. And the reason I bring that up is I'm not a musician myself. But my my co-host who's here with me sometimes uh, is and I'll often say, like, what is it about that drummer that I that I love? What is it about this that's sticking out to me? And for drummers, for some reason, every time, even though I don't know that that's what I'm clicking into, uh, my co-host, they're like, they're just hitting the drums extra hard. <laughs> like, they're just they're well, just drumming so hard. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on there that I also don't mm -hmm. technically get into in the book, uh -huh. but they're like. Hitting the drums hard is thrilling. And also, you have to have a certain excellence of technique to be able to mm -hmm. play well while hitting through the drums. Right. And so all that stuff is mixed up together. And that was my artistic identity for quite a long time, which I write about, which does have what I'm getting as I'm agreeing with you and your, and your, you know, your friend that. Yeah, I mean, like, when I see a drummer with the rock band, I don't want them to be hitting lightly. And it's not because I want it to be loud. It's about the assertiveness of the performance mm -hmm. and the way that it's not about the volume. It's how it makes the music feel. Now, I created a problem because I took it to an extreme level with the hard hitting that messed up a lot of other things on the way. But, um, but yeah, there's something great about a drummer who just <laughs> who just kills it. Yeah, it's funny that Trey maybe knew that that's what people were hoping to see from him. Like, what a there's a reason that band is still playing today, and maybe it's because it's just because he looks like he's hitting harder than he is. He's saving his energy for everybody else, you know. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, he knows how to play. He plays jazz parts, right, yeah. you know, but also you mm -hmm. think about um, the singer, you know, has done a bunch of writing, you know, they've done Broadway stuff. And mm -hmm. I thought about that, like, even back then, they knew they were putting on a show more than just like, this is just like rock at its core, like they were yeah. performing. And it was interesting. I will say about what I didn't know. Um, so this was yeah, this was the leadoff single off our 1998 major label debut, which was called Radiance. It peaked at number 14 on the Billboard Alternative Rock Charts, which I will say was a hard fact to find because Atlantic did a lot of advertising uh, for our next single, claiming that what I didn't know was a top 10 hit, which I've learned never trust the marketing departments of major record labels to be like <laughs> fact checkers. Cause yeah, sure. It was top 10 in different markets, you know, like, right. yeah. And you know, Charlotte, it was number two, you know, we had a big hit in the Philippines, but it peaked at number 14, which I tell people is like a, in a way, a completely forgettable number, you know, so there are today 20, <laughs> songs on the top 20 charts and if we pick number 14 like there's a good chance we don't know it you know like it's a real song that's out there but it's like you know it's right at that level where it can sort of appear and then disappear so that's why i feel like mm. i'm not just saying this because you're here and i don't know if actually it makes me less willing to say it just from what i've read and talking to you now but at least in philly that song it felt like and why 100 was our like indie alternative rock station. And it was a, it was a, like a big deal here at least. And, uh, but it felt to me like that song was everywhere that year. Like I, it, so, <laughs> but again, I, I don't know. Um, well, it was, it was in certain markets. You're right. But I guess what I'm getting at is when I meet colleagues and they say, you had a hit song. What was it? Like if I say it, gonna... it, it, there's the odds are low that they're going to be like, Oh, I remember that. Right. I will say, do you want do you want to hear what the number fourteen song is today? Yes, I do. It's called "Something in the Orange" by Zach Bryan. Uh, case in point. Yeah, mm -hmm. number fifteen is Beyonce's "Cuff It" though. So if you look at it mm. that way, yeah, I mean, that's pretty. You got the uh, the one up on on her right now in this week as compared <laughs> to your uh, highest moment. Let's talk about another song. What's um what's What's next in your heart? Well, you know, something happened when I was playing with Anthony, and that happens to a lot of young people, which is that my tastes in art started to change. You know, I was 19 when we recorded what I didn't know, um, had already been in the band for, uh, I mean, I, how old was I in eighth grade? You know, I like, right. I'd already been in the band for a long time, and so uh starting around really 98 99 when Anthony was having our most success i found that i started to become interested in a, some different bands and mostly just weirder artier stuff <laughs> and one thing that i would do is when we would do radio interviews inevitably the radio stations would have literally usually it was like a plastic bin of just discarded cds that had been sent to them and in my opinion that's where all the cool stuff was and i remember pulling out a promo cd from some radio station by a band called skeleton key and uh the case itself they had like taken had somehow opened the edge of the case and fit in like an actual like a nail or a screw or something and it just looked amazing 
And I took it with me in the van and listened to it, and it was just profoundly weird, and I loved it. <laughs> and the first song was called Watch the Fat Man Swing, and um, I just fell in love with that band. In an incredible turn of events, when I was in New York that same year, I ran into an old friend who told me he was playing guitar with them. And um, he then asked if, you know, if I would play with them. And I had some open time and I said, yeah. And so I started playing with Skeleton Key. I didn't know at the time that I was quitting Athenaeum to move to New York. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that was the first move for me into a new phase of music and um so I played uh, drums for Skeleton Key for quite a long time, and they're a great band. You know, I mean, they I tell people they were nominated for a Grammy once, and it was for album artwork. 
which to me encapsulates the absolute appeal of this band because it to me the whole thing seemed like an art project more than mm -hmm. even just a band but um yeah pretty pretty unique group yeah i think this this song i mean i'll say now we're only two songs in but there's nothing on the list of songs you've sent us or, or anything that I've listened to, you know, leading up to this that really sounds like anything else that you're associated with. Like everything is so unique in its own way and distinct from one another. Yeah. Does that feel like something you seek out intentionally or is it that kind of I, you, you described it even in just as how you took in music, you know, of like I would take all of it, like whatever, whatever these stations had, like that kind of thing. Well, with um, the move from Athenaeum to Skeleton Key specifically, the, I mean, those two bands really couldn't be further apart. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, although Skeleton Key wasn't necessarily as commercially successful as Athenaeum, although they had a major label record deal and stuff, for me, I felt like um, finding work with them uh, was my first really big success. And what I mean by that is leaving the comfort of my hometown band and moving to New York. And then all of a sudden getting hired by Skeleton Key, which was a real downtown group. Eric, the singer was also working with Yoko Ono and John Cale, and he was in the lounge lizards. And so you can see for me as a musician who was starting to get interested in weird music, I was like, Oh my God, I'm in the middle of it, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, there were a lot of different, bands and a lot of different musical trends going on right then and i mean even if you look back if you look back at that chart from 1998 that athenaeum was on or even the bands that were in chapel hill at the time which is where i was living we were all on the same charts but they we were seriously different bands i mean mm -hmm. ben folds five scroll nut zippers athenaeum whiskey town you know i'm thinking of just the bands from yeah. like my zip code like what <laughs> you know and so there was an openness in the 90s and the alternative and downtown scenes to like whatever. And mm -hmm. um, and I was into that and I was open to it. And I was super excited, especially with Skeleton Key as my intro to um, start getting work with uh, some of those bands in New York. That's very cool. It's I love the kind of coincidence of how you became involved, um, as you were saying, with Skeleton Key. And it's not something you, you in, in Bang Bang Crash, it's not something that you treat as like very, like precious. It doesn't feel like that you could frame that as this really kind of like mystical, you know what I mean? Kind of moment. And there are a couple of moments of coincidence in the memoir that I think are really lovely. And that's, that's one of them. And the one that I won't talk too much about because it, it really is so lovely when it comes together. Um, the, I think, you know, uh, okay yeah. yeah um but uh i i love the way they're kind of threaded throughout this book um and that's the one with skeleton key is a big one the odds of that are are seem pretty small to me but yeah i mean i agree on the other hand you know it's not like i wasn't meeting musicians every day you know that's, that's all true, that true. i spent time with so right. it was more in a way, I think they were more surprised that I was a big fan of the band. They were like, what? Mm -hmm. Like, you're, you know, okay. Because um, I met a lot of people from a lot of bands. But at the mm -hmm. time, there were very few that I was either touring with or playing with that I would have said, oh, my God, I love your band. 
you know, usually I would say like, oh, my God. Yeah, you guys are really nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know. yeah, I know you guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I heard you guys on the radio. You know, I love that <laughs> snare drum, um, which is, you know, all true. You know, you don't have yeah. to love everyone's art no. to be, you know, want to hang with them. But uh, so I hear you, but also it's a little bit sort of self-selective. Um, but it was sort of neat the way it came together. It is just in, in general. um Something else that I think sets your is what's happening right now. What sets your book apart is this sort of, I think musicians can sometimes be a little in love with their own kind of like lore and mythology. Um, and I, I think one of the things that's really like this, this, this memoir, uh, listeners, um, I'll tell you again at the end of the episode and I'll provide links and all that. You should absolutely pick it up. It is, it's, so um I do this I do this thing that I do on every episode and listeners are tired of hearing it but there are words that like and now that I've got a a a writing professor here I'm even more aware of it these are words that normally I would be like pick a better word but it's just like it feels very like grounded and sincere without being like too self I don't know. It just, it feels very like, again, another word I would normally roll my eyes at, but like authentic. Um, and yeah. Um, and so when I say like, oh, this, you know, sounds like this, this coincidence, like mystical, whatever. And you're like, ah, actually, no, <laughs> I think that's a really healthy way to look at one's own story, I guess is what I'm well, getting at I, there. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, and I do hope that's, the case, you know, that that's the feel that a reader gets from it. But this is also why I always argue that the drummer is the guy that you want to hang out with. You know, we're somewhere <laughs> between the crew and the front man, you know, like <laughs> there's the whole thing where the drummer is like the crazy guy. But in my experience, usually the drummer is like the sanest, normal dude <laughs> that has at least like the healthiest ego, you know. Um, so I'm just using your read as 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 fodder to back up my argument there. <laughs> I love that. Somewhere, the just any other member of a band describing themselves as being somewhere between the crew and the band, it's just because you have bigger stuff to carry. Like, I think that's what it is. You feel yeah, more like a roadie. I, like, I guess. But if you think when you're looking at a stage, where's the drummer? You know, we're like in the back, you know, we're sort of by the lighting rig. <laughs> we're physically sort of halfway in between. But I, I do, you know, I think it's a good mental space to be in. That's good. That's good. Oh, very quickly. I'm so sorry. I should say, um, uh, listeners, watch the fat man swing. Um, you're not actually, this isn't a song that you're hearing Nick playing on. Um, this is, uh, one of the ones that you really kind of like connected with first, right? Is that? That's right. So I did not, this is not me performing on watch the fat man swing. This is the first song on their Capitol Records debuted that that's the CD I'd gotten a hold of and that I fell in love with. And um, so, yeah, that's not me. And this next song, um, Rudderless by the Lemonheads, I had nothing to do with writing or <laughs> recording.
the reason it's on this playlist is because, you know, I'd spoken earlier about finding work as a session drummer in sort of the downtown New York City scene. Um, and in a way, that was, for me, the pinnacle of my success. It wasn't really having a hit song with the band that I, you know, formed in high school. It was finding work with groups that I admired, you know, downtown New York. And I, I had a lot of work there, you know, surprisingly, even in New York, it's like everybody needed a drummer. There weren't many of us. <laughs> um, I mean, there, uh, there are a million drummers in New York, but at the time it felt just like me and this other guy calling at every audition. <laughs> but the point is, you know, in a way I had reached my um, career peak. I was playing with incredible musicians. I was in demand. I was uh, doing a lot of sessions and, you know, working as a sideman. And part of being a sideman is being a little bit invisible, making sure you don't cause any trouble. You just know the parts. You get hired. There it is. The drum's perfect. Great. And I, I was good at it. And um, then I started to realize it was a that's a weird position to be in artistically. <laughs> and I was at the time playing for um, an Australian singer-songwriter named Ben Lee, um, who was great. I loved playing with Ben. And we did a series of shows in New York at a club called The Fez. And each night we would have different celebrity friends of Ben's come and sit in. And Evan, the singer of The Lemonheads, came and sat in with us one night. You know, we learned a few of his songs and we were his backing band. And I was ecstatic because I'd been a yeah. huge Lemonheads fan when I was young. <laughs> Me and Mark from Athenaeum, you know, I listened to that record, It's a Shame About Ray, a million times. So I was like... I don't need to learn these songs. I have these songs, you know, etched in my memory from having played them a million times. And we we played the show that night with Evan. And at the, the end of this song, Rudderless, there's a break in the last chorus where the whole band stops and Evan sings like a ship without a rudder. And then we come back in in the song and I screwed it up like the worst mistake a, a side man could make where I just didn't stop playing. I played straight through the whole thing where I was supposed to stop. Oh, I was mortified backstage. <laughs> we went straight backstage and I saw Evan and I said, hey, man, uh, I am so sorry for missing that break. And Evan looked right at me and I could just tell he had no idea who I was. Like he had never seen me in his life. And I thought, uh -huh. oh, my God, like not only was I just playing your song two feet away, I screwed it up and you still yeah. don't even know who I am. And it was like. Wow, if my if the goal of being a sideman is to be sort of invisible, like maybe I've done it too well. <laughs> and it it did give me a, a new perspective on what I'd been thinking of as my sort of professional peak. Um and so I do think back on that song and remember that moment. But also it was cool playing with Evan. I'm still a fan <laughs> of his. And now you've got this it's such a perfect example. Like this Again, there are a couple of moments like this in this in in Bang Bang Crash where you are so like uh, acutely aware of your position in whatever whatever scene is happening. And and it feels like even as the reader that it feels like maybe like all eyes, you know, um, kind of on you. And then you're like, oh, actually, nobody even has even noticed. And I think there that's one of those things that I think we all would do better to remind ourselves. Like I, I could list off a hundred moments like that where like my insides just shriveled up because I thought I did something stupid that everybody, you know, is, is still thinking about. And no one even remembers that moment or that I was there. 
like you just have this yeah yeah totally i mean i think at that moment on that evening I was probably the biggest fan of that song in the room. I probably cared more about it than Evan. You know what I mean? Right, right. So when I screwed it up, I was like, oh, my God, why, my one moment. And like, not only did he not recognize me. Yeah, he may have not even cared. You know, I mean, it's yeah. not like I just quit playing or like, you know, the song <laughs> had to stop. I just kept playing when I wasn't supposed to. But um, yeah, I. I've talked to other side men who've had this realization that like, wait, this artist I'm working for, they don't know my name, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, okay, like in one way, like it doesn't matter, you know, music is a universal language. It's like the individual can disappear. But on the other hand, it does get a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that it does, especially because music is something I, again, not a musician, but it feels to me like it being kind of like protective and precious about your own thing like you think you might want to be really aware of the people who are helping you to make that music even if it is like you said i don't mean just a session drummer but but you know what i mean somebody who you're not likely to interact with again after that or at least until the next time you need someone so that's interesting well i don't know you know i think one reason that i had success as a drummer and helped me was that I I never was very precious with my drum parts and my sort of like uh, uh, needing uh, to hold on to the importance of the sound of whatever I was creating. I let go very easily, which really is an asset in a band. There are other people who have a harder time with that. And if everybody just let go easily, that's not good. You know, right. usually actually you want your drummer to be the guy who's like, whatever, you know? So <laughs> I think like I'm blessed with the fact that I just sort of artistically was not overly attached to my drum parts. Um, but in a in a way, that's also, I think, what opened up my excitement and interest in writing, because mm-hmm. I never had um, a dream to be the front man of a band. I don't sing well. You know, I don't play any other <laughs> instrument and I never really wanted to. But at the same time, you know, being a side man or a drummer is amazing, you know, in the collaborative element of making art. But the artistic project itself was never my own specifically. And we're all weird, um, you know, humans in general. But, like, I got specific things artistically that I'm interested in. (laughs) And as a writer, like, I don't have to deal with other people getting them on board to get behind it with me. It's just my project. So I think that what was an asset for me as a drummer is also part of what enabled my passion to really sort of, like, move into writing in the same way what i'm kind of struck by is that the way you write especially in the beginning with with your your early teacher and mentor pete of taking a lot of it really very seriously but then at the same time being able to have that kind of freedom and lack of attachment seems kind of like in incongruous incongruous well to, to me in a yeah, way and i wonder the the freedom and lack of attachment, I guess, that I'm talking about is more about my role within a group of other musicians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But as far as taking the music seriously, especially when I was young and especially when I was studying with Pete, um, I couldn't have taken it more seriously. You know, I was yeah. a very serious musical student, but 
the reason I write about my drum teacher, Pete, was the things that made that relationship important were, you know, uh, went far beyond music, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, I looking back on it and what I'm getting at there, I am, you know, at the a young white drummer living in Greensboro, North Carolina, in a neighborhood of extreme privilege. Pete was an older African-American jazz drummer. You know, this is in the South in the 80s. And it was an amazing sort of duo coming together. And I mean, like, even then, I knew I was lucky to be studying with Pete. Um, but looking back, it was, it was an, it's an incredible, you know, gift that I had those years with him. But I remember Pete saying to me at one point, because we'd stopped playing drums much, in our drum lessons, one shot, once I really reached competence on my instrument, and we would just get together and he would talk to me about uh, race and about his uh, childhood in Greensboro and music. And I said, why don't we play drums anymore? And he said, well, you know, I've taught you the alphabet and now I got to teach you what to say with it. And uh, which is like, you know, it's like I'm studying with Yoda or something. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. And I think, you know, uh, so what I'm getting at is the things that were most important to me were even beyond the, the technique of music. And some of that, I think, uh, is part of what has complicated my relationship with music now, because it was so heady back then. I just feel like, mm. This rock stuff I've done, it's not even touching what I was getting at in my attic with Pete when I was in eighth grade. One of my my favorite things about this book is is your relationship with Pete and how um, complicated sounds like a negative word. And I don't think that it needs to be, but it is that, you know, and you can, even though he's not a character um, throughout your your whole life story in like a material in the room way you can feel that so much from those first chapters all the way through and i kept just reading you know reading as a reader um being like there are a couple of moments early on that are really about pete watching you play mm -hmm. and in different contexts that i have to imagine you it feels like the kind of like i don't know like the like specter of that uh, of Pete kind of like in the audience, maybe in those later moments where, for example, you're playing right through the break in a, in an Evan Dando song, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I, I know you're getting at some scenes early where I was having my first big rock concerts and Pete showed up at one and here's this jazz legend, you know, who I've been striving through my whole childhood to, you know, impressed with my jazz skills. And he shows up and sees me just going, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my God, this is exactly like what, you know, it's not that he, you know, as you said, it was complicated, not in a, not in necessarily a bad way, but you know, Pete understood what I was doing. That was successful. It was musical. He got it, but it also, you know, that doesn't mean that he maybe wasn't disappointed that I wasn't doing something that he thought of as more, you know, artistically. And it's just like, you know, sometimes I'll do readings and I'll have like older family members show up, you know, your, your older aunt shows up and you're reading some <laughs> weird short story from your book about like, you know, cousins making out in a tanning salon or something. And you're like, it's, you know, it's like mortifying, you know, I would, that's sort of the same way. Sometimes I thought when I would be 
have my rock music presented to Pete. Um, but I appreciate you feeling his presence on the page. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think it's impossible not to. And you handle those scenes with such, it would be very easy to write like, and I saw the shame in Pete's eyes and my, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's just like a few words here and there where you're like, it's, that's everything. That's everything you kind of need to know. Shall we, shall we move on to another song? Yeah. Um, well, this, this next song, um, called Heart Attack by the band Long Wave.
and white But it doesn't matter if it's fast or slow It all comes back to this Always ends in black Always pulls me under In a heart attack Longwave was a band in New York City that I played with, who I'm very close friends with the members still, and they're a great band. And, um, you know, at the time when I'd moved to New York, I was playing as a session man, and also I was going to college. And, you know, the great thing about going to school in New York is, like, I could actually find work as a drummer in the city almost full-time without having to go on tour. Mm-hmm. and uh, just playing in the city, little tours, going go tour in spring break. I would go on tour in the summer if I wasn't in class, and uh, which sounds so weird, but it was awesome. <laughs> but in any case, Longwave, um, I played off and on with quite a bit in their early success because they'd had some moving drummer, you know, issues. And I just, I wasn't signing on full time because they were blowing up. You know, they signed to RCA at the same time that the Strokes did. They did the world tour with the Strokes. And I was like, you know, I'm going to, you guys, I'm going to go to class. (laughs) So (laughs) they uh, recorded their first record, their first major label album with another drummer. And I was still tight with them. And then they uh, got ready for their second record. And I went and recorded that record with them. This is a song from that record. But when I think about this song, you know, we recorded this album on an insane mansion on top of a mountain and RCA giving the band like literally like half a million dollars to record this record. We had this, you know, famous producer, radio ads producer. And it was like, I I know this is hyperbole, but this is the last (laughs) record. This is the last record any major label spent this much stupid money on for a band that wasn't famous. I mean, Longwave, like, you know, is a total, like, it's a great band, but I mean, it's not like U2 or something. And so I look back on that summer in that insane mansion and just think like, oh man, I'm so glad I was there to soak it up. I, I proposed to my wife up there. We had a private <laughs> chef, like, you know, the whole thing. Oh <laughs> yes. And also I knew already that I was moving to Iowa to go to grad school as soon as I got out of the studio. Right. So I left the studio, came home, packed up my truck. So for me, this song is sort of that, you know, that last like, old school major label record deal uh event for me in in my uh drumming career and also a, a, a 
a recording session, an event that I don't think really exists anymore. Yeah. And I do feel so lucky. And I talked with Shannon and Steve about this, a couple of guys from the band, just like, can you believe, well, like, can you believe we did that, that we weren't, <laughs> that it wasn't four or five years later? Um, so yeah, it's also a super cool song, Heart Attack. It is, that is the word. Again, not a musician. That's the third time I've said this, but like that, as I was listening to it, I was like, this song is just cool. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know that it, you need any, it's, it's just a very cool song. I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I guess it's hard song. not to feel cool making music when you've got a private chef in your, <laughs> like, oh man, you know, it was like, Maybe I'll get to a point where I feel normal having a private chef, but I still was like, I'll make the eggs. Like, you don't have to. I don't know. Like, you want me to clean up? Um, but, yeah, we had a good time. That's a healthy way to be. Uh, yeah, Amen. Yeah, you don't want to be in that situation and feel like you deserve it, I think, you know? I hope not. If I If you ever have me back and you hear me yelling at a private chef, just cut me off. <laughs> At the same time, I hope that for everyone. I don't know. Now I'm now I'm conflicted. I, likewise, likewise. May <laughs> may you find a private chef in your life and someday in the future. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is a tangent I was not expecting to ask about, but the mansion made me think of you. Also, talk a little bit about staying at the Oakwood. Right? Yeah. Is that what was was you don't say much about that because it sounds like maybe you didn't have the same experience that I've heard. For folks who don't know, the Oakwood is this. Really strange. If you've seen the documentary, The Hollywood Complex, it's about the Oakwood. It's this collection of apartments where, like, it's kind of famous for putting up young child actors making their, like, like trying to make their way out in L.A. And it's pretty dark in a lot of ways. Is there anything that... No, I, I didn't know that. I've never heard of that documentary. I had no idea oh. that existed. Oh. To me, oh, yeah. Oakwood is just like a joke among people my age. Like, did you have a place at Oakwood? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They <laughs> set me up at Oakwood. So, like, actually, I'm fascinated. I got to check that out. Oh, um, yeah. I'll send you a link. And li listeners, you should also watch it. It's fascinating. Well, uh, you know, Oakwood corporate housing in the Hollywood Hills was essentially just like a big hotel. And you could rent you know, rooms there for weeks or months at a time. And clearly Warner Brothers, Atlantic, all the major labels and studios had, you know, accounts with them just to put young actors there. Now, mm -hmm. it was very close to the um, recording studio where we recorded. And so, you know, it just made sense for us to be there. But like, I, I could not have had a less la experience whatever <laughs> la experience you're thinking of is like i would literally wake up like go out on the porch look at the sun and then get in the car with our road manager who would drive me to the studio and then i would be at the studio all day and then i would yeah. come home watch the news and go to sleep i mean it was like i was a retired like elderly man at oakwood <laughs> and then like we i had a friend you know uh, one of like one of the guys started dating a woman upstairs who had like a she airbrushed T-shirts at the swap meet. You know, it was just like <laughs> there was nothing interesting. You know, we did have like there was one actress that we hung out with who was in like Austin Powers movies and stuff. You might recognize oh. her. But it just seemed like honestly, it was totally normal because I I couldn't have been busier. All I wanted to right, do was go right. to the studio and record and come home and talk about the songs and think about what we just recorded and then go back. And it was like I could have been in Des Moines, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Oakwood thing was 
I don't know. It, it wasn't that weird. It really just felt like a, a hotel room to me. Um, I also, we had one rental car for five people and I was <laughs> 19 or 20 and yeah. I was just like, you know, sort of living in tunnel vision. But then again, ask any of my friends and this is the exact story I will tell you about fill in the blank, any like grand rock opportunity. I'm like, well, I went to sleep early and then read the paper <laughs> when I woke up. I'm incredibly consistent in, in that aspect, I suppose. That sounds like it's done you well though you don't you know again like i said at the top of this episode this memoir could be very different you know there are a million of them out there that that yeah that don't end with you having a pleasant conversation with somebody in philadelphia on a podcast you know like so that yes but you know what i will say is for the most part the musicians that i played with uh, almost throughout my career were consistently like me mm -hmm. and um you know there were surprising lack of drugs and insanity, you know, <laughs> stuff that people might, you know, my story is not hammer of the gods. Right. But I wasn't an anomaly. It was mostly just sort of like slightly overachieving, like nice young dudes who were really <laughs> sort of like um, motivated and, and, you know, not to burst anyone's rock and roll bubbles, but like sometimes you'd come backstage and we'd be talking about Faulkner or Hemingway, <laughs> you know, or like, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I think, but I also we have think gentle listeners. So, yeah. Okay. All right. But, you know, I like all the musicians that I played with from all the bands in my past, I have very good relationships still. And I think that's a testament not to me, but to just that group of people. It can be a testament to both. I think that's that's yeah. really genuinely lovely to hear, though. That that makes me very happy. Just as a general fan of music, um, we only have one song left to talk about. Um, this has absolutely flown by for me. Uh, before we get into it, this is a little different. Usually, I'm asking when folks are, you know, when the next album is and what shows they're they've got coming up and all of that. You want to let our listeners know. Um, where they can follow you if that's something you want them to do. Um, obviously, the book is out, Bang Bang Crash, February 21st. I'll have links for all of that stuff. But anything else you want to pass along? Yeah, well, incredibly to me, through the course of writing the book, I have started playing a little bit more. And um, in particular with uh, two musicians that I worked with on the next song that we're going to listen to, um, the, the group Falcon. Um, and we have recorded a handful of new songs that is going to come out, you know, in the spring of this year. So I will say, oh, look yeah. for a new release from Falcon and that's Falcon with an exclamation point on the <laughs> Hell end. Hell yeah, it is. Uh, and, uh, so I do have new music coming out. The book's coming out February 21st and, um, really my only like, uh, profile online is on Instagram. You can find me at Nick three underscores brown <laughs> and uh i do have a um a handful of uh reading dates for the book tour that i'm doing um mostly throughout the southeast but i'll be in iowa uh for one reading and in into the deep south and maybe new york so um keep up with me there absolutely and we'll we'll share all those dates and we'll keep people posted um as as falcon as the album uh Pops up and all of that. Of course, quickly for us, I'll go fast. We're at Left the Dial FM on Instagram, Left the Dial PC on Twitter. Everything else you need to know, you can hear in the break. 
Um, I want to give one quick plug for something. We just recently published a review of a really cool band, Jackson Pines, their new album, Pine Barrens Volume 1. It's this collection of traditional Jersey folk music, and it dates back to like the 1700s. It's a really fantastic album. And over on my other podcast, New Jersey is the World, uh, my co-host Chris Gathard and I, we got to sit down with the guys just randomly that it happened that it lined up with both of my podcasts. I had nothing to do with either of the two, um, but they had really fascinating stuff to say about the album, about the Pine Barrens, about South Jersey culture in general. It's a great episode. If you read the review and, or you dig the album listeners, uh, go check that interview out at NJ is the world on Twitter at New Jersey is the world on Instagram. That's everything on my end. Nick, why don't you tell us what song you're going to send us out on today? Well, our last song is going to be dry land by, by Falcon. <laughs> was a really sort of a side group in New York um, that I was playing drums for. The members were in other bands that were quote-unquote successful, you know. And this group came together to play the songs of the songwriter, Neil, who we all loved. And, of course, since it was a side group, there was no pressure on the band for success or anything. So <laughs> we it all became our favorite band. And... Um, and I still love Falcon. It's the favorite band I've ever worked with. And um, when we booked our first show at Pianos downtown, they asked for a, a bio to put up on the website. And um, at the time, I've been writing bios for bands around town because I was the drummer who was into writing. And so I, the band said, Nick, you write one tonight. And I said, okay. And since it was a side group, there was no stakes. Nobody cared about. So I made up everything in the bio. I made up the most ridiculous story I could come up with. And Pianos put it on the website. And everyone in the world believed it. NPR reported it as true. The Village Voice, Entertainment Weekly. I got a call from the New Yorker wanting to do a story on my fake bio. The story that I'd made up was that we were playing the songs of a dead 
child <laughs> songwriting prodigy named Jared Falcon, who had recorded a song every day on his Fisher Price tape recorder and then died in eighth grade from meningitis. And we'd found the tapes and we're bringing the songs back to life, which to me was an obviously a lie. And to everyone else, they thought this is incredible. And so two things. Falcon, regardless of any backstory, is a great band, and I love working with them. But the interesting thing about that story specifically for me was that that sort of silly band bio and the fallout from it was um, an odd experience, but it was also the first success I had as a writer. Mm -hmm. And so when I look back, that band bio for Falcon that was fake was the first story I wrote that really connected with people. And yeah. uh, it gave me a strange sort of confidence to keep writing. Um, and, you know, I guess since then, I've let people know when it was fiction or nonfiction. But at the time, it was a bit of a mess. I I'm, I cannot tell you how directly up my alley the sort of like I said, I think I used the word mythology earlier. It's appropriate here um, of the band falcon i am it's so funny and it's so you it's i it's the dead child i think that had you like people uh, don't question that who's gonna, who's gonna make up a dead child you in particular but it's oh I, yeah I, no kidding but then i was worried that i'd like <laughs> oh like i've leveraged you know the trauma of people who have a dead child or like you know, oh, they're like, oh, what have I done? You know, I thought everybody would know I was just trying to tell a funny story. But, of course, I made a mess out of it. <laughs> it's so good. I love a story that gets away from somebody. It makes me like there's there's a there's a book or a movie in this story on its own. It's just like it could have I, you're it's. I mean, it really could have blown up into, <laughs> into something much uh, less controllable for you, I think. <laughs> Well, it's funny you say that there's a book or a movie in it because the the story of Falcon is the first essay I wrote for this book that turned mm -hmm. into this book. Also, even when f the Falcon thing was happening, you know, I was just a drummer then. I was not a writer. My father-in-law is a writer. And I remember him saying, like, Nick, this is a book. His agent, like, found out about it. He's like, this is, like, this could be yeah. something. And now that I've written the book, my film agent got in touch recently. And he's like, you know, that Falcon chapter, we might could turn into a yeah. film idea. So you're right. There's, there's something endlessly sort of potent there. Yeah, I would love to see that. It's... I, I it just it reminds me it's a total side note and I'm realizing we are we are just about over time for you so I won't I won't hold you much um longer but there's a uh story there's a there's an he's an author he's just like a strange guy his last name is Methaney and I always forget his first name but he wrote this like one of the first ARGs like alternate reality games um, about a place in New Jersey called Ong's Hat and he made up this big story and he shared all of this really weird um, just like t different like made up brochures and stuff and he did it kind of as an experiment to see what would happen but then people really really bought into it to the point where like people this was like in the in the late 70s or early 80s and people still show up on his doorstep and they're like take me to ong's hat which is this tiny place it's not even on a map in the pine barrens anymore um that he invented this like whole story about this like wormhole and time travel and and all kinds of stuff and people want him to take them there and take him to this other dimension that he and he says now like I was making up a story and everybody's like, that's what you would say. You would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and I just, I just, this reminds me of, of that in it.
in a really oh, kind that's of fun, awesome. <laughs> a fun way. Um, oh, I'll man. I'll post links to Ong Sat in the show notes, too, because it's really fascinating. Cool. Yeah, that. I mean, you know, part of, like, I did think when, like, the whole fake news thing started to become something mm-hmm. we were talking about, like, Oh my God, I did that. I did that by accident. <laughs> you know, that was one of the first times I, I started to think about writing about that piece. But it is sort of like, as a writer, it is interesting to see what people are compelled to believe. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you were saying, like just the specificity. If you get yeah. real specific, exactly. you're like, oh, well, this is true, you know? <laughs> and like, um, as my daughter pointed out recently, we were talking about this and she was like, well, why wouldn't anybody believe it? Like you, it, it was, it sounded <laughs> believable. Like they didn't have a reason not to believe it. And you know, it's like, that's a very good point. So yeah. it is, it is sort of like a, a weird superpower we have as humans <laughs> to like yeah. deploy this stuff that people will believe. But I just, I didn't do it on purpose. It is the, <laughs> the, the primary takeaway here. Right. That's what I was going to say. The intention is what really matters. It's obviously very different. This is a very different thing from, you know, I don't even want to get into, like you said, what what we have now in this uh, like fake news era. Oh, um, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to stink up the room with that phrase. <laughs> no, no. No, we can get back to the dead child. That's much lighter. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> um, I, I do really love the story. I love this song. Like you said, Falcon is a great band. I'm very excited that uh, you guys are going to have new music for us. So that's a fun note to go out on. Um and yeah, and of course, like I said, Bang Bang Crash out uh, February 21st. And that's on Counterpoint. I don't think I've said that yet and uh, probably should. Um, this really, Nick, was was so fun. It was really lovely talking with you today. I really appreciate you being here. Yes, I had a blast. I really did. Yeah. I feel oh, like so we that. could just keep hanging out. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, five-hour podcast for everybody. Um, well, uh, we'd love to have you back, though. Maybe you and uh, and the rest of the gang when the album is out, and you can we can dig into the Falcon songs. That would be super fun. Oh yeah, well I'll let you know. I mean, even if that doesn't work out, the new stuff is super cool. Like, awesome. I, I went to the studio thinking this will be an excuse to hang with these guys, and it's like. <laughs> Some of it is like I'm like we're the best band in the world, <laughs> so we're excited. That. It is really good. Awesome. Yeah, good. Now, now I'm excited to hear it. Like I said, this has been so fun. Bang Bang crashes out this Tuesday, February 21st. Links to order the book, which you absolutely should, in our show notes. Nick, thank you again so much for joining me today. This has been Left of the Dial. I've been your host Andrea. Nick Brown has been our guest. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. And if I don't see you. Yeah.